0: discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast don't want to be an american idiot so i'm going to listen to the stick to wrestling podcast i want to thank my friends the band green day for writing that song about their favorite podcast stick to wrestling and on the day that we're recording this american idiot the album turn 16 years old if you want to feel old i personally think it's one of the best albums ever definitely the best album of that decade so that's high praise but little did i know it's kind of a polarizing album i mentioned that in one of my facebook groups (laughs) people hated that album i was a little bit taken aback but whatever this is stick to wrestling i am john mcadam give us 60 minutes and perhaps indeed we will give you a raw bone podcast now i know there are good podcasts out there. But I maintain that there's only one Wicked Good podcast, and it's Stick to Wrestling. And weighing in on this subject is no less than the leader of the free world, President Donald Trump. President Trump, what is your reaction if someone were to suggest that there's another Wicked Good podcast out there? What a stupid question that is. What a stupid question. At the end of the day, he's right. It is a stupid question. There's only one Wicked Good podcast out there. And it's Stick to Wrestling, and one reason we're wicked good is because we have really good guests, excellent guests. I want to bring on Dave Dynasty, who's making his maiden voyage as oh, there's a guest on Stick to Wrestling. Dave, thanks for coming on.
1: Yeah, hey, thanks, John.
0: No problem. I get stuck with a name like John McAdam. You get you get a cool name like Dave Dynasty. That's not fair. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, you know, some some of us create our identities so, though, so
0: we really stick <laughs> with them. <laughs> ah uh, we all have to reinvent ourselves or yeah. at least invent ourselves <laughs> dave and i are just going to talk about general wrestling we're not going to stick to one particular topic today dave in your opinion who gets the trophy for wrestler of the 80s you know
1: i think this this is kind of an interesting topic to me it's got to be rick flair and i'm a, I'm a little biased towards that but i mean you know seven time nwa champion always had great matches and, and great feuds and just The believability, the the personality, I got to go with Flair for my vote uh, for wrestler of the 80s. All
0: right. I, I guess for me, it depends on what criteria you want to use. Like if you go by wrestling observer criteria, it's Flair by a mile. I mean, Ric Flair, if you made a list of the top 10, you know, US Canadian matches of the 80s, it's a list of Ric Flair matches. With Ricky Steamboat and Randy Savage thrown in there, and I'm serious, I believe he has nine out of the top ten that I would consider, you know, the ten best matches. Excellent on as an interview. I mean, probably the best interview of the 80s. Ah, uh, but then there's another criteria, and to me, in reality, you've just got to give it to Hulk Hogan. I mean, he changed the entire industry. He was a household name. I know Ric Flair was a household name in the Carolinas, but Hulk Hogan. All throughout the United States and Canada, everyone knew who he was. For better or worse, he transformed the business. I, I got to give it to him. I, I will ask you, Dave, this is a little bit of a curveball because we hadn't discussed this earlier. Would Hogan be your number two?
1: He, he would, yeah. And that, When I was thinking of it, it was it was Hogan and Flair trying to decide which, you know, which it would be. I, I guess the Flair is just a personal thing for me because I, I was never a big Hogan fan. And and I know Hogan gets to knock about his matches being predictable, but I guess if you break it down, Flair's matches were almost just as predictable as Hogan's, <laughs> in in, in the, you know that pattern he used. So,
0: yeah, I I mean Ric Flair is my favorite wrestler of all time, and as, as much as I'd like to say, you know, yeah, Rick's definitely number one. You know, I I gotta give the nod to Hogan. Now, as Dave mentioned, it's like it's either Hogan or Flair. That's going to be your one and your two. It just depends on the placement. Any thoughts on who might be number three? Um,
1: no, you know, I really, when I thought this through, I never really, I never really thought beyond Flair and Hogan. I thought, cause they're like, you know, like I said, I think there was Flair and Hogan and everybody else was kind of an afterthought. Though so I, you know, I think, I think an argument can be made for Savage, like you said, with his match quality. And, but although his, you know, rise was more of the last second half of the decade. So
0: exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, it, there's just a huge gap between number two and number three. Yeah. Ultimately, for number three, despite the fact that he missed like two and a half years being retired for real, or at least he thought he was retired for real, I would go with Roddy Piper. He was a huge star in the Carolinas in the earlier part of the decade, and then he came to the WWF, and he was Hogan's main rival, and then he had the babyface yep. turn.
1: Yeah, there. I mean, there may have not been a Hulk Hogan without a Roddy Piper.
0: I no, have that, that's, a, have that's that an excellent point. Yeah. All right, uh, let me see. How about wrestler of the '90s? Who do you give the nod to? This one was really complicated for me.
1: It is the '90s. To me, it was Bret Hart. I, I think, and again, I'm, I'm biased. I'm a big, you know, big Bret Hart fan. I know something can be said about his, you know, his, his promos, his interviews, maybe not being up to par. But to me, if you just look at the quality of work for the entire decade, I, I think it's, I think it's Bret Hart.
0: I actually liked Bret Hart's interviews even before. He turned heel. And, you know, as much as the wrestling changed so much in the 80s, I mean, it was basically the same thing. In the 90s, I mean, it was barely recognizable from, you know, January 1990 until December 1999. I mean, the business was crazy. Despite him not being much until not really getting started until 1996 in terms of being a really big name. I'm going with Steve Austin. I mean, I really believe that without Steve Austin, Vince McMahon would not have won the war. I mean, and you couldn't go anywhere without seeing someone in an Austin 316 shirt.
1: Yep, I agree. I thought of this. Austin was my number one thought. And then I had kind of looked at the numbers, like you said, him coming into it later in the decade. So that's why I kind of leaned towards Bret Hart. I think you'd also have to put Shawn Michaels in that mix. I'm not a huge Shawn Michaels fan, but I think, you know, his quality of work, uh, you know, even though he was possibly very difficult to work with, was very good in the nineties as well, though.
0: I mean Michaels was excellent in the nineties, and I mean people I don't think he was better than Bret Hart, but I think he was That's a better. top ten worker during that decade. Yeah, I agree. And you know, Sean, despite all the bad things, legitimate you know, and they're legitimate. I mean Sean and his friends, from what I understand, there was a time he went out of his way to make people's lives miserable. I mean just everyone around him. But I mean, he was a great wrestler, and supposedly, right before WrestleMania 13, was it, when he lost the title to The Undertaker, I mean, supposedly, he could barely move. His back was in awful shape. He went out and wrestled a killer match, and he legitimately needed all kinds of help to get back to the dressing room from China and Triple H.
1: Yeah. I, I've heard that, but I always hear these arguments with Sean with, when he came up with these injuries and whatnot. not. People believing how much was true or how much was just him, and I mean I don't know I mean, I don't know how much he's come clean on on what was legit and what wasn't you know over those years, and some of his difficulty and not wanting to do jobs for guys and different things, but yeah, I, I think the back injury was pretty legitimate
0: my understanding is the back injury was legitimate, some of his other ones were not so legitimate, or at least if he really wanted to. He could have gotten it in the ring one more time, you know, do a five-minute match and lose the title. He just didn't want to lose the title. There was a time when I was like, you know, Vince McMahon is crazy for putting a belt on this guy again, but he kept doing it.
1: I know. I don't know what the connection was with those two. I, I, <laughs> I, mean, no, I don't know if he just thought Sean was the default person to go to, you know, repeatedly or what it was. But, yeah, I, I agree.
0: I mean, I heard a long time ago that Sean – just absolutely had Vince McMahon's ear for a long time. I mean, he was able to talk Vince into giving him, no, not only turning him heel, which is something Sean wanted for a long time, but when the WWF turned Sean heel, they really got behind him. I mean, they gave him Sherry Martel, They gave him the Intercontinental title. They gave him a huge push. I mean, and and like I said, supposedly Vince McMahon just listened to Shawn Michaels.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, lo- I mean, I love early Shawn Michaels when he first turned heel. I thought that was great, that whole period there with him.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. He was and this is before he really got, you know, turned into the Shawn Michaels of the mid to late nineties. I actually had Hulk Hogan second and we'll talk more about him as the show mm-hmm. goes on. But I mean he going to WCW, I mean it really made a difference in WCW, not really at first, but I mean they had Hulk Hogan, so you, you got the ear of some of the customers. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it definitely,
1: I mean, it had turned heads. If people were flipping through the channels, and I mean, everybody knew who Hulk Hogan was. So if you see him on a different product, it would, I mean, I think people would stop and watch. And then, of course, you know, later, and when he and reinvented himself, I think he he took it to a whole new level.
0: So, yeah, I, I very much agree with that. Your number one was my number three. I had Bret Hart third. I mean, Bret, the entire decade, he was there, and that makes a difference. And he, you know, he was a top guy in the WWF for a while. Then when he went to WCW, I remember saying at the time, and I was wrong, that if Vince McMahon can't afford Bret Hart, he can't afford to stay in the wrestling business. Yeah. Yeah. But little did I know that Vince wanted to get rid of him. <laughs> yeah. Right. Signs into a 20 year contract, and like seven months into it, is like, Bret, just go. Anyway, <laughs> Dave, give me your thoughts on Rick Rude as a potential wrestling observer Hall of Famer. Well, I guess when you brought
1: this up, I guess I'm a little surprised he wasn't in because I think. I mean, to me, I think Rude. I don't think there's any question that he deserves in. I think he was of his era, one of the top heels. I mean, he worked well with everybody. I mean, he made the Ultimate Warrior look good uh, in you know those series of matches they had. And I guess I was surprised that you know, considering he did a lot of you know main event competition and held some major titles, I guess I was surprised he wasn't even already in.
0: Yeah, here's where I don't agree with you, and I want to really underline this for everyone. Me saying someone is. Seems to be overrated as not me saying he sucks or anything like that. I thought <laughs> Rick Rude was really good. I saw a lot of potential in him early in his career, like when he was in Memphis in 1984. Yeah. I was like, wow, this guy has the look of a, a big star. And then he went to Florida and you know, got a good push there onto world class. And I know this, this makes me probably not the best broadcaster in the world because you want to tell people, oh, yeah, I think Rick Rude definitely belongs in the Hall <laughs> of Fame and everyone applauds you. I don't see it. I'm sorry. I mean, he was the Intercontinental Champion in the WWF. He got uh, the series with the Ultimate Warrior, but he was never really a, want to say a top guy. I mean, he wasn't Hulk Hogan level. He wasn't Randy Savage level. Ultimate Warrior's not in the Hall of Fame, and he shouldn't be. And, you know, he was the WWF Champion for a while. I think he's one of those guys, he's like a Greg Valentine or a Magnificent Morocco, if he got in, like, I wouldn't object. I wouldn't say, oh, my God, this is a, a bad selection. But I just personally wouldn't vote for him. Yeah,
1: I, I always viewed him as your textbook heel. He's that guy that you legitimately thought you would hate. And I thought he made the crowd rally behind the faces even more. And um, I don't think he was a great worker per se, but I think he he did well with what he had. And uh, I always I always loved Rick Rude. I always thought he was a great performer. I always thought he he could have got a little more than what they gave him. Again, I was surprised he was not already in. Honestly,
0: no. And you know what? You made a really good point just there. I mean, just because I don't think he's a Hall of Famer doesn't mean I didn't enjoy him. I mean, I loved Austin Idol, I loved Greg Valentine, I loved Ken Patera, and I think those guys fall just short. That's that's just my opinion.
1: Yeah, I would agree. All
0: right, and you know, I wanted to also bring up when Ric Flair left for the WWF. This is like September 1991. And WCW brought in Rick Rude right afterward. Like, you know, not right after. I think he debuted at one of their Halloween Havoc shows so like six or eight weeks. And at the time, I, this this was crazy for me to say, but I really thought it. I thought WCW made a good trade. Like, I, I thought WCW was better off with Rick Rude than Ric Flair. And let me explain my bizarre reasoning. It's not that Rude in general – was more valuable than Ric Flair, but I thought he was more valuable to WCW because Ric Flair had been with WCW since they got on TBS six years ago, and what else were you going to do with the guy? And Rick Rude was a fresh new face, but he hadn't done anything in WCW, and I thought they could have used that fresh new look. Plus, no one was getting over in WCW with Ric Flair in the way. And with Ric Flair gone, maybe you could have gotten... Rick Rude and Sting over as your new top guys. Any thoughts on that, Dave? I
1: agree. I thought when Rude showed up, I thought for sure they would give Rude a a run as a top guy, especially when he got hot with the Dangerous Alliance and with Paul E. I thought they would make him the guy, you know, in that mold of flair, you know, being the hill that everybody chased at the top, you know, because they had some of these young guys with the Dustin Rhodes and Shane Douglas being around. And I think Ricky Steamboat was back in the area then. And I I really thought they would give Rude a, a run on top at that time. And and let him, you know, try to carry the company. I was excited when he showed up there. And, you know, I think he had some really good work there. I, I loved the stuff he did with the Dangerous Alliance with Paul E. I thought they were kind of a, an underestimated group there, underappreciated group uh, in WCW at that time.
0: You know, I, I really like the Dangerous Alliance. I mean, anyone who listens to the show regularly knows how much I liked Paulie dangerously as a manager. I think he, I had him as number three manager of the 80s. He was only around for half of the decade. At the same time, the Dangerous Alliance, it was an interesting idea, but there's the argument that if you're trying to push Rick Rude as your top number one heel, putting him in a stable with guys like Larry Zabisco and Arn Anderson kind of waters him down a little bit. What
1: Any thoughts on that, Dave? Yeah, I, I can definitely see that because I do think the Dangerous Alliance kind of had the stigma of being a handful of guys they didn't quite know what to do with and they kind of lumped them together and put them with Paul E. And, you know, and I think they made it work to a certain level. But I think Arn had the stigma of having to be in a group. I don't know what they would have done with Zabisco otherwise, uh, outside of the Dangerous Alliance. So, I mean, I can see that. I can kind of see where he could get lost in that shuffle of the group and, and not stand out, even to the level of what Flair stood out in the horseman, because I don't think Rude, they didn't build the group around Rude, you know, as him as champion and the group there to kind of protect him. And so, yeah, I, I could see where he could kind of get lost in the shuffle there.
0: Yeah, I always thought that Ric Flair should have, you know, there's an alternate universe where Ric Flair isn't part of the Horsemen, isn't part of a gang, and as a result, he's not sharing his spotlight.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I agree. All right. Dave, what was the most disappointing no show for a show that you attended?
1: Well, uh, this one was tough for me because I was trying to remember who didn't show it, and I'm not even sure if this one was a no show. I'm not sure if he was scheduled or not, but I went to a show. It was a WWF show in, in 96 in Indianapolis, it fully expecting and wanting to see Steve Austin at that time, and he was not there. He, did not, he wasn't on the card. I don't know if he was supposed to be or not, but I remember that being a huge disappointment to me to not get to see Steve Austin at that time
0: live. Now, what year was this?
1: This was 96.
0: Okay, and I so think this- by then, the WWF was just saying, come out and see WWF wrestling and yes. not giving you a list of matches. Am I right?
1: Yeah, there was no card put out there whatsoever. I I mean, I remember, I don't even remember specific matches off the top of my head that night. I remember Bret Hart being there. I remember Yokozuna being there, the British Bulldog, and then lots of undercard guys. But uh, yeah, I I was really surprised because I think this is when Austin was really starting that climb up, starting to get some attention. And uh, I guess I was surprised he wasn't there. I was was pretty disappointed to not see him uh, there that night. All right.
0: I have two, and one of mine is Austin Idol. He was supposed to be at an ICW show in Waltham, Massachusetts, at the very end of 1986. They advertised Austin Idol, Uncle Elmer, and another big star who I've been racking my brain trying to remember, and all three of them did not show up. But Idol was the one I really wanted to see, and I was left wondering, was he really booked, or did they just you know, bait and switch?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty common practice.
0: <laughs> Sometimes yeah, especially in the Savoldi promotion. <laughs> the, the one legit no-show was Jimmy Snuka was booked for a match in Lemonster, Massachusetts, sometime in May 1983. I actually tried to look up this card, and I couldn't find it anywhere. But the main event was billed as Jimmy Snuka against Samoan Alpha, and then the rest of it was just like nonsense matches. It was all Total undercard guys. We go to the show. It's like an hour away, but like it was raining. We had nothing else to do. And we get to the arena. We're watching these prelim matches. And I'm talking like, you know, guys that never win on TV matched up against each other. Then we have intermission. And after the intermission, they've, we've got two matches left. They announce that Jimmy Snuka is injured and will not be wrestling. <laughs> you should have heard the <laughs> groan from this place i mean snooker was the only thing anyone was coming to see so we had the main event of samoan Alpha against sd jones and bless his heart sd <laughs> oh, wow. tried his hardest and he got in a lot of offense but i mean jimmy snooker to sd jones is quite the elevator ride down
1: yes i mean that's 83 that's prime snooker years too that would have been incredible to see him at that time <laughs> And i can i mean it goes to show you his draw and his ability at that time, at the fact that the whole card was pretty much just built with him him being the draw there.
0: Oh, yeah. And like I said, I wish I could find this card somewhere. It is nowhere out there. But, I mean, <laughs> driving an hour because we had nothing better to do, and we said, oh, let's go see Jimmy Snooker And, you know, hearing that an hour and a half into the show was, was quite the memory. Yeah, I'm lucky enough to have seen a lot of prime Jimmy Snooker. This is like six, seven months after his turn. And, I mean, Snooker was as hot as any wrestler I'd seen up until Hulk Hogan arrived.
1: Right, yeah. Yeah. I agree. All right.
0: So, Dave, in your opinion, let's go to 1995, 1996. Who helped the NWO more, Hulk Hogan or the Outsiders, Hall and
1: Nash? I think, to me, it's hands down it's Hogan. I think uh, Hogan, the, that whole turn, that whole scene, I mean, it's still one of the most talked about moments in wrestling history. I think the way he reinvented himself, he needed it. I think the wrestling needed it. I mean, it completely took WCW to a, a new level with him coming out there at Bash of the Beach and doing the turn.
0: You know, WCW had a lot of moments, a lot of key moments in their ascent. The first one was getting Monday Nitro, a primetime show on national cable that went head to head with Vince McMahon and kind of, you know, just made the Monday Night War explode or made it start. And I was thinking about this today, back in the late 80s, early 90s, the Saturday before WrestleMania, I was on the sports talk show, this local show in Nashua, New Hampshire, so it didn't go very far, but I spent an hour on the radio talking wrestling, and the number one question I got was, okay, is this real? And I would always say, you need me to tell you whether or not this is real, Uh, but number two question it was always a WCW, and NWA wrestler they were talking about. When is fill-in-the-blank going to the WWF? It right. was always, when is Ric Flair, the Road Warriors, Sting, Lex Luger, when are they going to the WWF? No one, not once, asked me, when is Hulk Hogan going to WCW? When is Randy Savage going to WCW? When Hall and Nash both jumped from the WWF to WCW is about, mm, I want to say, six weeks apart. That kind of flipped the switch. People were now wondering, when is Bret Hart, Steve Austin, etc. going to WCW? And to me, that defines Major League. But having said all that, it would not have been big without Hulk Hogan. I mean, he was yeah, as much as I hated Hulk Hogan at this point, I couldn't stand him in the in the mid-90s. But he really, when he became part of the NWO, that made the NWO really special. And by the way, they should have just stuck with those three guys. Having half the roster in the NWO made it not special to be in the NWO.
1: Yep. I completely agree. To me, the NWO should have been the trio. And I like your point about Paul and Nash jumping and flipping the switch because I remember among some of my friends that were watching wrestling at that time when, you know, we were trying to discuss who the third man would be. I mean, we were, seriously thought that the third man would be Shawn Michaels because of his connection to Hall and Nash. Before that, they're jumping. I don't even think that would have been a a legit thought that that he would ever jump over. But after those two showed up, you know, I think it was a a legit you know, thought, a legit concern of him being that third guy.
0: Yeah, now let me ask you this, Dave. Uh, This is 96. Were you getting, like, newsletters at this point? Yeah, I was getting the Observer. All right. I just wanted to check out where you were. Because I think, like, it would have been in the Observer that you know Michael's contract is expiring or whatever, yeah. and right about this time we have a wrestling internet explosion where people who have been fans for a long time are finally getting access to information, and you know guys would do interviews. And I remember Eric Bischoff doing an interview with America Online. Remember them? Yeah. <laughs> and you know he was adamant. He's like, there are WWF wrestlers that I am interested in bringing in. But Shawn Michaels will never be one of them. I mean, he was yeah. just so adamant that I will never bring Shawn Michaels into this promotion. It really it stood out for me.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, at that time, I was convinced he was going to be the third guy because of, you know, the curtain call and, and knowing his connection to National Hall. And and yeah. I just thought, you know, he he's going to be that third guy to follow them right over up until that moment when I saw Hogan walk out. And I thought, I ah, know this is the guy here. So,
0: yeah, I had heard and I've heard over the years, but I heard as that was going on. They wanted Hogan to do it. Hogan wasn't sure. He was like, you know, Yo, okay, I'll try this. But they were genuinely afraid that when Hogan got to the arena, he just wasn't going to do it. And if that were the case, it was going to be Sting. And you know, I was watching the match live, and as it played out, I mean, it became obvious that Hulk Hogan was going to turn into a bad guy, which was unthinkable, you know, just 10 years ago.
1: Yep, I agree. It didn't. It gave Hogan a complete second career. I mean, to me, you know, he had had run his course. Everyone was tired of the red and the yellow and and the vitamins and prayers. And, I mean, it gave his career a complete new lease.
0: I totally agree with you. It revived Hulk Hogan. That Hulk Hogan that was doing the same old shtick in WCW that he did in the WWF, the whole Superman thing, really had backfired. And it had... Just a, a whole '80s flavor to it, and you're not going to be. It was like the equivalent of wearing parachute pants in 1995. <laughs> it was a bad fashion statement.
1: Yeah, and it especially didn't help him that they were bringing in all the same heels that he wrestled through his WWF run, and, you know, and just repackaging them and you know doing the Dungeon of Doom and the Shark, and I don't even know what else they did, but oh, and uh, it was le- legit the same feuds and matches that he had, you know, tried they had run in the WWF.
0: Yeah. I mean, the WWF, I mean, their business was way down in the mid nineties. And one reason it was way down, they stuck to that same kitty wrestling formula that had been worn out. And then WCW decides to copy that. And you know, Hogan had complete creative control. And I'm sure he stuck with what he knew, something that he knew had worked in the past and it had just become passe.
1: Yeah. And if I remember right, when Hogan signed, I think he had complete character control. So he was legit was just going with what he knew, what he thought had worked before and thought he was bigger than the business. And that, you know, it would just work again just to rehash it all in a new company.
0: Yeah, I mean, I remember the time he wanted he, and Hogan was the kind of guy if someone else got hot, he knew how to cut them off at the knees. I remember Brian Pillman coming out with a, a mysterious injury to keep him out of a like a seven-on-two cage match because he yep. knew that it, he was hot and Hulk Hogan was looking to pour cold water over him.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: All right. Let's talk about our high points and low points as a wrestling fan. Dave, what was your high point as a wrestling fan?
1: Um, I would have to say, I'm going to be kind of surprising, both my high point and my low point are actually the same night. And it was, I do not recall the year, and I tried to find the date and I couldn't find it. But when I was very young, my grandma took me to a, a local wrestling show in her hometown. It's a, a little town called Edinburgh, Indiana. It's just a very, very small town. But Dick the Bruiser would run spot shows in this town maybe once, twice a year in the high school gym.
0: Wait and a minute. You I, got to see a Dick the Bruiser show?
1: I got to see a Dick the Bruiser. Well, this was this was late Dick the Bruiser. We're talking,
0: that makes it even better.
1: Yes, we're talking. What year early, was this? Well, it had to have been early to mid-80s. So this was. Okay. So there is the high point that, you know, I grew up watching Bruiser TV with my grandma. So I was going to get to see Dick the Bruiser. So I I got to see him live. So that was the high point. (laughs) And the low point was honestly that it was Dick the Bruiser in the 80s. And it was not the Dick the Bruiser that I had seen in these, some of the rehashed 70s matches that they showed on the TV still. And, you know, he was definitely showing his age at that time. So while it was very exciting to see Dick the Bruiser... It was a little disappointing to see that it was Dick the Bruiser that kind of looked like my grandpa at that time.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. I remember, you know, seeing Dick the Bruiser in the mid-80s and just, you know, kind of shaking my head like this guy has been around forever and he's not going away. So so you grew up watching Dick the Bruiser's WWE on TV every Saturday.
1: I did, yeah. Where I grew up was unique that we got Bruiser out of Indianapolis. And I could also, though, pick up the Louisville feed of Memphis, that edit of the Louisville edit. Because I was close to both. My grandma was the one who turned me on to wrestling and she was a huge Dick the Bruiser fan. So, uh, he ran these little spot shows in her town. He ran spot shows in my hometown. He was very close to this one car dealership in our town. I don't, he must have been friends with the owner because he did a lot of personal appearances at this thing. And my dad was a policeman. He tells a story and, and I have no reason to not believe my father, but that one time he pulled Dick the Bruiser over who was speeding through town. And as he went, you know, to, you know, realized who it was. He got talking and Dick the Bruiser took him out and was showing him some of his the title belt in his trunk and everything else. And he says he just let Bruiser go with a warning. But I don't have any reason to, to to not believe him. But that's the story my dad always told of his Dick the Bruiser
0: interaction. I have no reason to doubt that story. I mean, I would show someone a wrestling belt to get out of a ticket. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean. So, well, who, who? when you went to see him the first time, who was he wrestling?
1: No idea. Do not. I don't remember any details. It was probably a Nobody. The WWE roster was very, very weak in the '80s. They had some talents that were local that were, you know, pretty good, but they did a lot of knockoff. They did some knockoff wrestlers. There was a guy named Hooded Hangman that was just a mask guy. It was a, kind of a local wrestler. They did a Gary Lawler who was supposed to be Jerry Lawler's cousin, and they, uh, there was lots of things. We actually had a guy who was <laughs> actually wrestled as Sergeant Slaughter, but it was oh. not clearly not that so- Sergeant Slaughter. So there was a lot. There was some of that kind of stuff, and uh, I don't even remember. I was so I was fairly young. I just remember going in this gym. I mean, it was pretty full. It, it drew pretty well, this little town. Everybody was just excited to see Bruiser. I mean, everybody in Indiana knew Dick the Bruiser.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm not saying this derisively, but sometimes when you go wrestling comes to those little towns in the middle of nowhere, it draws really well because nothing else comes up there. We you know I went to a show, an ICW show in Laconia, New Hampshire in like 91, 92. And nothing comes to Laconia. So the gym, there was probably a good 1500 people in the gym to see ICW.
1: Yep. That's the way this was. And, and, you know, and like I said, while well, me being a kid and, I, you know, of course I'm seeing the, some of the glitz and glamour wrestling on TV. So Bruiser was a little, little disappointed. And I, and again, I'm, I'm a huge Dick the Bruiser fan and I can overlook, you know, some of that because I, you know, like I said, I know he was still a draw, but you know, to me, I was like, I could tell there was this, it didn't appear the crowd knew any different. I mean, they were, they were wholeheartedly behind Bruiser and, it was their hero that was there at you know, their little high school gym.
0: Yeah. I mean, I remember in, I think it was 82, reading an article in one of the After magazines about how Harley Race had won the WWA title from Dick the yes. Bruiser, and as a result of him winning this not-so-major title, he was suckered out of an NWA title shot because, oh, you can't hold two world's championships. <laughs> and. Even as a teenage kid, I was reading this, going, "Yeah, right."
1: Like I said, Bruiser. Now the, in Indianapolis, Bruiser would bring in some talent. You know, I mean, he had, like you said, he had Harley Race come through. Uh, King Kong Brody. They couldn't call him Bruiser Brody because there was only one Bruiser in Indiana. But oh yeah, uh, King Kong Brody came through and had a title run, and and lots of guys like that in Indianapolis. But those guys weren't coming to to Little Enberg, Indiana, and in, in Southern Indiana.
0: No, and and you know what? I've I heard the story about you know why. Brody was King Kong Brody in the WWA, and the AWA. I mean, if you're in the same territory as Dick the Bruiser, like, wouldn't being Bruiser Brody work to the feud's advantage? Like, hey, excuse me, I've been using this name since the 60s, Junior, and and based on that.
1: If I'm remembering correctly, they did have, the feud did center around the Bruiser name, and there was a match where Dick beat Brody, and he had to go by King Kong after that, so I do believe they did center a, a card around that, the, the Battle of the Bruisers, so to speak. But uh, Dick had this thing where he would bring in guys like that, but like I said, they were only going to Indianapolis. They weren't coming to my little town. So,
0: Oh, yeah. No, I, and that, that's the way it works in Memphis, too. But to me, that's like such a natural feud. Like you could have Dick the Bruiser kind of looking at the ground saying, you know, I've been calling myself Dick the Bruiser for 20 years, since 1950-whatever, and if I don't beat this guy, this young, big guy, if I can't figure out a way to beat him. Next time you're going to see me, I'm just going to be Dick Aflis. I, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's built in as something yeah. you could
1: well really draw with. Bruiser wasn't really known for his storytelling though. He was, the TV that ran was just, they would just record the expo shows in Indianapolis and they would usually stick in one or two matches from the seventies. And Ugh. there wasn't really storylines. The interviews were very, very just, you know, local interviews, plugging the next show. And there wasn't a whole lot of story. At this time, by the time you got to the 80s, a lot of, there wasn't a lot of storytelling going on.
0: No, I mean, I remember, you know, w w a they got a lot of coverage in the After magazines in the 70s, and that quickly went away, and they got practically no coverage in the 80s. So that Harley Race slash Dick the Bruiser storyline that they threw out there, you know, it kind of made me say, wow, this, this is still here. And then in the Kiteser magazines, they would have a rundown of the WWA and they would yep. name some names, mostly guys either that I'd never heard of or guys who I knew were, you know, kind of on their way out of the business, like Jerry Valiant. And I'd be like, you know, I know these guys are working construction during the week. And I was a teenager. I had that figured out.
1: Yeah. There was a lot of local guys here in the Indiana that contributed to Kaiser Mag. That's why there was a lot of coverage. There was a John Lawson out of Terre Haute was a huge WWE, he covered, you know, went all the shows and his family had some ties to the promotion in that area. And, the, and he was doing a lot of photography and writing for the Kaitzer mag. So that's part of the reason, you know, Norm Kaitzer had a lot of connections with some of the Indiana guys that were watching WWE.
0: All right. That totally makes sense. And, you know, it took me forever to figure out what the magazines were about. I mean, if they had pictures, they would just write an article around the pictures. And that's mm. what would get a promotion like the WWE covered.
1: Yep. Yep. Absolutely.
0: All right. Well, back to the script. I, I did not know that. That's really cool. Let me see. Oh, we're still in high point and low point as a wrestling fan. And your low point was was seeing Dick the Bruiser kind of get old and, and not just be what he once was.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't a complete disappointment. And I was very starstruck by seeing him and everything. But, you know, like I said, I saw him in some of these 70s matches, bouncing Bobby Heenan around the ring and wrestling the Black Jacks and, and, and being, you know, tagging with Andre, because they were still showing some of those on TV. And uh I very quickly figured out that not the same Dick the Bruiser anymore.
0: I would say, for me, my high point as a wrestling fan started, I think I, I know I've told the story on the show. I won't go through the whole thing. I mean, I came home late at night. It was December 1986, and there were three Wrestling Observer newsletters waiting for me. I opened it up. And it was like reading the Holy Grail. It's like all the questions I had about wrestling were being answered. And I was getting news in almost real time. Like, you know, he could tell me what happened last week as opposed to waiting for the aftermax to tell me what happened eight or nine weeks ago. And at that time, too, like I really felt like wrestling was getting a little bit stale to me. Like I had been a fan for over 10 years. And, you know, just looking at it from the perspective of a, you know, so-called mark or a magazine mark, and it just refreshed the whole thing for me. I really think that had I not started getting The Observer and the other newsletters right around that time, I would have dropped out of being a wrestling fan, certainly by the end of the 80s. As far as my low point as a wrestling fan, it's spring 2001. When the WWF started to suck, they bought WCW, who kind of died on their own, and they went creatively bankrupt. It was like, you know, WWF was so good, in my opinion, from kind of mid-1996 until WrestleMania 17, which I thought was a great show. All the matches had a great buildup. And the next night, Raw sucked. Seven days later, Raw was even worse, and we were off. Into that awful summer of 2001. Dave, I think you mentioned that you were no longer watching at this point. Nope, I was not. I,
1: that's right around the time where I quit watching. And when they acquired WCW, I mean, to me, that's just such a, a drop ball moment that, you know, it, it could have been one of the biggest angles and storylines in history, you know, that the WWE versus, you know, WCW. And yeah, everything just fell off. And that's around the time when I, I really detached from watching. And anything I watched at that time was just, you know, old tapes that I had. You know, from the past that I, I really wasn't watching the current product at that time at all. Through most most of that two thousand <laughs> decade, there.
0: No, I I topped out like fall of two thousand one. I said, um, you know, I have so many wrestling tapes that I haven't watched, and I mean hundreds and hundreds of them. And I would rather watch this old stuff than tune in on Monday and Thursday night and just watch this garbage. And I'm not someone who you know hated like i said i i love the wwf in 98 99 2000 but it just all of a sudden turned into trash
1: yep i completely agree i mean and i'm always one of those guys that i could watch just to find certain aspects that i liked even if there was just you know a handful of guys i liked i was not seeing anything that was just grabbing my attention
0: yeah i have a, another high point and that's when you know my friends and i got old enough to get in the car and go see wrestling i want to say anytime we wanted but We started going to the Boston Garden in 1981 and we stopped going like regularly in 85. I don't know why, but we did. But, you know, just get, you know, finally it's no longer just a thing I see on TV once a week. Like I was going to the matches when they were hyping the Boston Garden shows for four or five weeks. I didn't have to wonder about what happened. I didn't have to go to the Seven uh, Eleven on Monday and just see the results. Like I actually got to see what happened, and that was that was a really cool time.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. It's something you know, not even in wrestling, but just the whole world. When you get that license, it opens up so many doors. Unfortunately, oh my
0: god, yeah, yeah, you know, well, <laughs> so many great memories yeah. of that.
1: <laughs> yeah, see, by the time I got my license, my big thing was going to concerts. So I was just going to concerts left and right, and like I said, there wasn't really weekly or regular wrestling, you know, in Indiana at that time. When I got my license. So, what in regular shows for me to go to uh, at that time?
0: Oh, I mean, we went to a ton of concerts as soon as we turned 16. Um, I mean, sometimes we would go just for the sake of going. Did you usually go to Indianapolis?
1: I did. Yep. Indianapolis. We had a, there was Market Square Ring at that time, was, you know, doing shows. And then we had a, a an outdoor, what do you call it, an amphitheater. It was, at that time, it was called Deer Creek. I don't know what it's called now. It's got some sponsor name, but yep. It was one of those two. I, I could not even count how many shows I went to.
0: You know, I was thinking about this earlier this week. My family, we lived in North Attleboro, Massachusetts, and we moved in 1979 to Nashua, New Hampshire. We very narrowly almost moved to Bangor, Maine, and Bangor might have been great. I have no idea, but one thing's for sure, like, I wouldn't have been able to go to anywhere near as many concerts and wrestling shows as I did, you know, living 40 minutes away from Boston. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean,
1: like I said, one of the cool things about where I lived, you know, I could I mostly went to Indianapolis, but I could, you know, run over and catch a show in Cincinnati and I, I could go to Louisville and catch shows. And, you know, if it was a band or an act that I really liked, I, I'd go to all, I'd follow them that little loop they did right here around the Ridden West and I'd, I'd go to all the shows.
0: Oh, sweet. That's awesome. All right. Uh, let me see. In your opinion, Dave, what is the best ever WrestleMania match? To me, it
1: is Steve Austin versus Bret Hart, WrestleMania 13. Just the way the double turn went and. The way it built, you know, it elevated Steve Austin to a new level and, and to see Bret Hart, you know, starting to dip his toe and being a heel and really getting into that. I love that match. Like, again, I was a huge Bret Hart fan and uh, I especially as a fan of his heel work uh, right after this. But, you know, and it, it was hard not to get caught up in the in the Austin stuff that was going on at that time and his rise of popularity. And uh, that that's to me is just the best WrestleMania match I've, I've ever seen.
0: I am in agreement. That is my number one WrestleMania match. It gets my vote for match of the decade. Not only was it a riveting five-star match, but it set up the surgeons of the WWF. Austin came out of that match, if he didn't come out of babyface, which he kind of did, he came out as a tweener. I remember watching it going, what are they doing with Bret Hart? Are they trying to get people to not like Bret Hart. He's just, the way he's acting, you know, it, it didn't dawn on me that they could actually turn Bret Hart heel. As a matter of fact, I was saying they can't turn Bret Hart heel because of Canada. Well, was, I mean, one of the most creative things they ever did, and to this day, I'm shocked that it worked because it's so non-traditional, was Bret Hart was a baby face in Canada, where WWF was doing great business compared to the United States, and he was a heel in the United States. And even though Jerry Lawler had done it in USW, he was a baby face in Memphis and a heel in the WWF. And they were intertwining the storylines. I was like, you know, there's no way they could do that. And it worked.
1: Yep. I completely agree. And, and coming out of that match, I mean, if nothing else, I think people were sympathetic to Austin because, you know, they, they, you could always say, uh, you know, he fought to the end. He didn't truly give up. You know, he passed out, but he was fighting and clawing right till that last moment. And then. You know, Brett tacking him and just continuing on after the end of the match. I, if nothing else, I think you know it, it got Austin as showing how tough he was and, and establishing him as you know the fans were, were kind of sympathetic to him.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, there's no way a fan, even if they did not like Austin, could have walked away from seeing that match and have you know and not having respect for the guy. He didn't give up, and he refused to have any assistance on his way back to the dressing room. And the guy was soaked head to toe in his own blood. Yep. Yep. It was now bad. that and again that was the launch of probably my favorite WWF time in history which we'll we'll get to in a minute but uh all right and you know what you can't mention the best ever WrestleMania matches without saying Randy Savage versus Ricky Steamboat in 1987 it gets the silver medal. I mean that yep. match was phenomenal. I'll never understand why people will say, "Oh well, they plan that match out in advance. So it's not as good. Like that doesn't matter. That doesn't nope. shouldn't affect your level of enjoyment for that match. What, what Would that be not your number two Dave? It,
1: yep. Definitely my number two. If it hadn't been for this Austin awesome Britt, it would have by far been my, my favorite. But when I was, when I was young, that was the match I watched a, a thousand times was that WrestleMania three match. And I, I don't understand that either. It, to me, I, I didn't know, and I couldn't tell. And even watching now, I, I can't really tell that they worked it all out ahead of time. I mean, they did such a good job with the selling and, and everything else. It does not take away from the enjoyment you know, to me at all.
0: No, and it, it shouldn't to anyone. And I'm like you. When WrestleMania three happened, I had a handful of wrestling videotapes. So not a lot of selection out there. But I have this one match that is just incredible that I, I was like you. Yep. I watched it all over and over again. Yep, yep, absolutely. All right. Yeah, I mean, you think about that, That at one time it was by far the, the best match in my entire collection. All right, Dave, what was your favorite year of WWF wrestling?
1: I would have to go with around 88 to 89, that year kind of from WrestleMania 4 to WrestleMania 5, not necessarily a calendar year per se, because I was such a huge Savage fan when he did the turn, and, and I was a little disappointed with the tournament at WrestleMania 4. I mean, as a kid it was fun to watch, but I was so happy that Savage won and that whole year long process of the mega powers and, and them splitting and with you know Elizabeth and the the jealous and the envy and to me I was just captivated. I mean at that time I was thirteen, fourteen years old and I was so entrenched in wrestling and that year was just spectacular to me.
0: That's an interesting answer. Well, let me ask you this. As a kid growing up, you've got Memphis on one station, you've got the Indiana promotion on the other station and then, I don't know what year, actually, they entered the Midwest, I'm guessing 84, the WWF, like, just kicks down the door. Like, what did that feel like to you?
1: It was interesting, because when I saw it, it felt completely like another level. To me, you could just tell it was bigger than Memphis, and it was bigger than Indianapolis, and, and it just, you know, it was like, okay, I've, I've been watching, for lack of a better term, I've been watching minor league stuff, and now here, oh, here's the majors. This is the sparkle, and the glitz, and the glamour, and, and all that, and I didn't like a lot of the cartoony aspects of the WWE, and part of it, you know, was a bit much for me. You could just tell that it was a larger company on a larger scale.
0: Yeah, I grew up on the WWF, so I was used to them. I mean, we talked about last week how they completely changed in 1984, but WWF, even before they got Hogan, even before they went national, it it always felt like to me, okay, this is the major league brand of wrestling. I'm not saying that knocking the NWA or the AWA, but even when I got the magazines, I felt like okay, this is you know the top promotion in wrestling. Like you know, the NWA title is more prestigious than the WWF because that covered like ten or twelve different territories. But the WWF itself always felt like you know the biggest territory, the most major league to me.
1: Yeah, in this '88 to '89 time period, I, I think it might be my favorite wrestling overall because I was also Huge into the whole Flair Steamboat thing that was developing at that time in the NWA. So over just overall, I mean, that, that, I think that time period that year was just great for me.
0: Yeah, my favorite year, as I mentioned, was 1997 in the WWF when they finally felt like, you know, they were trying something new and they were on their way to being the number one promotion again. You had the entire Hart Foundation versus Steve Austin feud and storyline with Mick Foley getting involved with Steve Austin, which was really funny. You had the summer where you had, you know, Bret Hart against The Undertaker with Shawn Michaels as the guest referee. And then, of course, you had the Montreal Screwjob, where a former guest on the show, John Muse, called me up that night. I had the tape. I was recording it in the living room, but I wasn't watching it. And John calls me up and he's like, "Uh, did you hear about what happened? I was like, no. He's like, you know, go watch that tape. I won't tell you. So. I did, and I couldn't believe what I saw. And, you know, of course, you see it. You're like, okay, how legitimate is this? I mean, the whole Brit refusing to do a job or whatever you want to call it was the talk of the newsletters at the time. And, you know, you ask yourself, after I saw it, I go on America Online. There's a second time I mentioned them (laughs) on the wrestling boards there, and it was all anyone was talking about. Like, how legit was this? Well, it turned out to be 100% legit. Yep.
1: When I watched, I was so skeptical at first this is a work they're just really trying to sell it i thought this is not a legit thing here and then when you yeah when you start to find out that it, it truly was it was like holy you know what did i see then you know and what did i watch
0: yeah i mean i remember it, like when i found out that no was 100 percent legit my first reaction was if i was brett hart's agent i'd be like brett you're doing the three years you signed on for in wcw and then you're going back to the wwf because that is where the money is to be made. You are a very valuable commodity there right now. Yep, yep absolutely. I have to mention, when, if we're talking about favorite years of WWF wrestling, and I, I grew up out here, I mean, I mentioned it again. If I had to pick one year, it would be 1982, because now I'm going to all of the Boston Garden shows. And not only that, I'm going to a bunch of spot shows, too. I, I think I probably went to about 50 WWF shows that year because, you know, you've got that as you mentioned, that brand-new, shiny freedom where you can get around and go to concerts and go to wrestling shows. It was like, okay, I've got all this freedom. Now I'm going to use it.
1: Yeah, yeah. The 82 was a little – that's prior to me you know, having access to WWF at that time around here. So
0: Another reason why I liked that year, I mean, they had a lot of fresh challengers for Bob Backlund. They had Mulligan, who had been here before, but I'd never seen him. Snuka, Orton, uh, Adonis, Ventura. It was a fun year. All right. Dave, tell me your favorite short-lived wrestler-manager pairing.
1: Well, the one I picked, I'm not even sure exactly how long this pairing lasted. And I tried to actually look up and see, and I, I really couldn't get dates up. But I'm going to go with the British Bulldogs and Lou Albano because I was a huge fan of the British Bulldogs and their work, <laughs> but they couldn't talk. And even, you know, I, I you could never understand anything they said. They were... Did not have that and when they were with Lou, it, it added that colorful personality, and of course he could talk. And I know this was late in Lou's career, but to me it was so fun when I was a kid, it was so enjoyable. And and again, I'm not sure exactly how long it even lasted, but to me it was something that had it not been for dynamite's back injury and, and whatnot, it, it could have lasted a lot longer.
0: I think it only lasted about six months. Lou took over like right around the beginning of eighty six. And he was retired, I want to say, June or July 1986. So, yeah, that definitely qualifies. Here's what Lou brought to the table. Like, in the 70s and 80s, he always managed the tag team champions. Not always to the point where there was never an exception, but rarely was there an exception. As a matter of fact, I think the, the last manager who managed the heels to the tag team titles was Fred Blassie in 1977. After that, Albano got all of the heel tag team champions. So now he's got a babyface tag team champion. So I thought that made a nice mix. Like, okay, you've got this tag team wizard in Lou Albano, and now he's taking over the Bulldogs.
1: Absolutely. And I, I think it was just a, a foregone conclusion that they were going to win the titles at some point, you know, when leading into WrestleMania 2. You just, you knew it was going to be, you knew, like you knew it was going to happen that night. And it was, it didn't, you know, take away from the excitement that I just assumed it was going to happen. But uh, I was such a huge fan of the British Bulldogs, and I just I thought Lou just added a whole new element to him
0: Yeah, I knew, like, I didn't have inside knowledge, but I'd watched enough wrestling where I, I knew, okay, WrestleMania two is going to be the British Bulldogs night. Like, no wonder they don't have them yet. I thought they waited a little bit too long to put the titles on the Bulldogs, but at the same time, I understood that, you know, they wanted to have that big moment, that big WrestleMania moment that they talk about. The big Ozzy Osbourne moment? Yeah, exactly. When Dynamite's legitimately hurt outside the ring and Ozzy Osbourne and Lou Albano were celebrating with a belt. I didn't like that moment at the time, but I appreciate it now. We talked about this recently. I'm not sure when. It was probably like two months ago. Jim Cornette managed Dick Murdoch in the beginning of 1988 for the NWA, and it looked like it was just a superstar pairing. It was like they worked so well together. Cornette brought out the best in Murdoch, and the whole thing lasted like six weeks. Murdoch went back to Japan tour, and when he came back, they made him part of Paul Jones army. They were so good together, and I think Murdoch could have main evented and like I said, they just threw him back with Paul Jones. It was crazy.
1: Yeah, I always thought they missed the boat with not giving Cornette, you know, kind of a top tier potential singles guy. I always thought there was gonna do something with him and Steve Williams or something. They would put somebody with him to kind of you know, round out his group a little bit, give him a singles guy, but they never really stuck.
0: No, I mean, we've talked about this on the show before. I know Jim liked managing the Midnight Express exclusively. If I were running the promotion, I I would have just said, Jim, we're underutilizing you. Yes, manage the Midnight Express. We'll give them a big push, but I'd like to give you a top singles guy as well, which is why the Murdoch thing falling apart was so disappointing at the time. Yep, I agree. All right. I'm going to give you one last question. What was, in your opinion, the best WWF team of all time?
1: To me, and again, this might be a mark of my time of, you know, really hitting, uh, watching wrestling, but to me, it was Demolition. But I have to give an honorable mention, I guess, to the Dudley Boys just for the number of title reigns, even though I'm not a Dudley Boys fan. But to me, I mean, Demolition, when they came in, to me, felt like one of the first truly kind of WWE or WWF exclusive tag teams that really went next level they had they had so many great tag teams to work with at that time and they had that long run they had for over a year there was a very deep tag roster at that time and, and i think the fact that they were kind of the leaders at that time to me i think they're the best
0: that's actually a good one and i share your sentiments when it comes to the dudleys i frankly could never stand that tag team even when they were in ecw In the late 90s, I was like, you know, get these guys off my television. And now, you know, 20 years later, more than 20 years later, people tell me that they are the best tag team of all time. And that's quite a polaric difference between, you know, greatest of all time. And I personally cannot stand that tag team. I like Christian Edge. I like the Hardy Boys. But you know what? They didn't do it for me. The way a couple of old-time veterans in 1981 and 1982 did. I'm talking Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito. They got next-level heat from me and everyone else. We hated those two. They were so good at cheating. Saito was such a good wrestler. I didn't realize it at the time, but he was. Fuji was an unbelievably great heel. I didn't think he was a good manager, but he was a great heel when he was a wrestler. He knew where to be and what to do. So when it comes to the old-time teams, or, you know, just the, the greatest of all time, because the fans legitimately hated those two.
1: Yeah, I always thought Fuji, uh, that's the one thing I think the downside with Demolition was Fuji as a manager, just it never really seemed to work. He he looked good with them, but I don't think he brought a lot to the table outside of having that cane for him to use.
0: Uh, and that and the fact that Fuji was also wearing Demolition makeup, I thought, yeah. <laughs> made the act a little bit sillier.
1: Yeah, yep, I agree uh, with that.
0: Dave, I'll tell you what, this has been an excellent show. Thank you for coming on. But you have an excellent wrestling podcast, do you not?
1: Well, I have a podcast. I don't know if it's excellent or not. But, yeah, (laughs) I have one. And uh, it's just called The Dave Dynasty Show. A little unoriginal, but, yeah, you can look it up. It's on any podcast platform up there, out there. Or you can just go to DaveDynasty.com, and there's some links there. And then you can find me on Twitter at The Dave Dynasty. I always share my new episodes on there. So that's the easiest ways to find me.
0: All right. Well, Dave, thank you again for coming on. You're an outstanding guest.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: No no problem. And I want to take a moment to thank our producer, the great lightning, Lou Kippelman, who makes us sound good every single week. He does a lot of work behind the scenes and is greatly appreciated. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. So long from the Granite State. This concludes our podcast day.